Good morning. Good morning. My name is Wade, uh, one of the pastors here. For those of you guys who are joining us first time or uh, recently. Um, so, uh, it's weird to be back indoors. I wasn't here last week. I was at a couple churches um, in uh, other parts of the Bay Area. But uh, thank you for thank you to Tracy and to Michael for pulling it together and all the volunteers. Uh, it's really nice to be indoors right now. So, um, Pastor Michael, he, he walked us through this passage in John um, earlier during the call to worship. This was Palm Sunday, um, or the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And uh, this is what we're, we're celebrating today. Today is the beginning of Holy Week, which is the week before the, the crucifixion, before Resurrection Sunday. And um, what I want, to, want for us to do in the next few moments is for us to set our focus on Jesus so thank you, Nate, for leading us in songs about Jesus. We all, as a as a uh, church, we started singing. We, we sang we to Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name about Jesus. This is what our church is all about. Um, so, um, like Pastor Michael said, the the triumphal entry. This is um, the crowd is uh, they they were expecting the crowd went outside the gates of Jerusalem. What they had in mind, perhaps, or perhaps the soldiers that were around the area in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, they were, uh, they, what they had in mind was the, the types of processions that Rome had, which is if someone were marching into town, it was very often a conquering, conquering general who went, was coming back from war. Um, he is in a golden chariot. He is, be, that's being pulled by these majestic horses, stallions behind him are his soldiers and they're, they're happy, they're celebrating because they've won the war. Behind the soldiers are um, perhaps slaves or uh, other captured soldiers. So it was just a like grand spectacle, this uh, very uh, cer- ceremonious um, big deal. But then here comes Jesus um, entering Jerusalem, and the scene is so different because what does Jesus ride in on? He rides in on a baby donkey, a little donkey. Um, he's not savoring the attention like a conquering Roman general would. Actually, the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Jesus was weeping, weeping as he went into Jerusalem. His admirers, they are peasants. They are children. Um, they shout Hosanna. They're full of excitement. But they have no idea what's to come in the coming days. And this is the triumphal entry. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And it happens in John 12, and it leads us to today's passage in John. So if you look in your bulletin, I'm not sure if you guys are going to have it up here. If you're watching online, you can also follow along. But we're going to read from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. And this is immediately following the triumphal entry. Now among those who went, us, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. And in our few moments together, 
I want us to understand what it means to be glorified. We hear this word in this passage. I want us to understand the purpose of death, specifically the purpose of Jesus' death. And finally, what it means for us, for those of us who have the shadow of death, or maybe it seems like there's death in our lives, some type of death. What does it mean for us? So three points to get there. Number one, the search for Jesus. Number two, the purpose of Jesus. And number three, the path of Jesus. The search, the purpose, and the path of Jesus. So our first point, the search for Jesus. As we look at the passage, we're introduced to a group of Greeks. They've traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. And they find one of the disciples of Jesus. And they tell him that they want to see this man, Jesus. This man who has caused such a huge stir among the pilgrims who have arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And John, the author of the Gospel, he includes this detail about their ethnicity, these Greeks. Because it was a rare thing for non-Jews to celebrate Passover. Um, this was the annual festival that the Jews celebrated um, when they were thinking about their liberation from the Egyptians. It was the Jews that they understood the significance of Passover. The Jews, they were the direct beneficiaries of the event, this exodus from Egypt. And if you were Jewish, it meant that you had the, the idea, this concept ingrained in the memory of you from your very early childhood because the Passover gave shape to your life. Even after 1,400 years after the Exodus happened, this was one of the primary markers for a Jewish person. And this is why the inclusion of the Greeks in this passage is notable. We're being told that the Gentiles, they're looking for something to give shape to their lives, just as the Passover gave shape to the lives of the Jewish people. We all look for something to give shape to our lives. What is it? You could probably think of it pretty quickly. Your family, your career, your hobbies, whatever it is you're passionate about. It's shaping who you are as a person. You want to become a certain type of person based on what matters to you. Um, I'm going to take a, a uh, kind of a, a popular figure in pop culture right now. Her name is Glennon Doyle. Um, if you've been to Target, you might have seen her book in the, in the book section. Um, and uh, she is one of the voices of, one, one of these many voices that we hear in culture right now that tell us, you should find yourself. There's chatter in our culture about self-realization. There's chatter about finding your true self, your authentic self, um, finding out who you really are, what do you really care about. And then you build your identity on these things. Um, if you've watched Zoolander, Derek Zoolander, who am I? Who are you? Who are you? Um, Glennon Doyle, uh, she wrote a book called Untamed. This came out uh, two years ago, right before the pandemic. It was a number one New York Times bestseller list. It sold two million copies. It was featured in Oprah. One of the, um, the, the highlighted books in multiple major news organizations. Glennon Doyle, the author of Untamed, she writes this in her book. And this is her talking about finding who you really are, um, giving shape to who you are. I am here to keep becoming truer, more beautiful versions of myself again and again forever. To be alive is to be in a perpetual state of revolution. Whether I like it or not, pain is the fuel of revolution. Everything I need to become the woman I meant to be, 
I'm, I'm meant to be. Next is inside my feelings of now. Life is alchemy, and emotions are the fire that turns me to gold. I will continually, I will continue to become only if I resist extinguishing myself a million times a day. Let me read that again because I think this is this captures really what uh, the heart of the book is. I will continue to become only if I resist extinguishing myself a million times a day. Self-realization. If I can sit in the fire of my own feelings, I will keep becoming. She's saying that she knows that she should become some type of person. She's saying, I know that there should be something, something shaping who I am. What type of person am I becoming? And this quote is one of many that captures the message of the book, which is to uncover your true self, which is to listen to the voice deep inside of you, listen to it, submit to it, follow it. Um, interestingly, Glennon Doyle, she used to identify as a Christian, but no longer. And this is what she writes. I don't know if I call myself a Christian anymore. That label suggests certainty, and I have none. It suggests the desire to convert others, and that's the last thing I want to do. It suggests exclusive belonging, and I'm not sure I belong anywhere anymore. Part of me wants to peel that label off, set it down, and try to meet each person soul to soul without any layers between us. But I find myself unable to let go fully because to wash my hands of the Jesus story is to abandon something beautiful to money Hungry hijackers. She's referring to people like me, maybe. Um, people you might see on TV. I want beauty. I want sex. I want faith. I just don't want the hijackers' commodified, poisonous versions. Nor do I want to identify myself with hijackers. I think she's referring to Christians here. So I will say this. I remain compelled by the Jesus story. Not as history meant to reveal what happened long ago, but as poetry Poetry meant to illuminate a revolutionary idea of a revolutionary idea powerful enough to heal and free humanity. Now, um, what is she saying? We need to be freed from our these these notions of Jesus. If you want to be free, if you want to be healed, you need to go beyond these traditional teachings of this man Jesus. And that's strange. This is interesting for Glennon Doyle to write this, even though her journey has. She's left the Christian faith. Um, her idea of Jesus is still so compelling to her. And I think for good reason. Um, we may hear many things about Jesus. Um, and though we hear many untrue things about him, either in churches or in media, in society, through people claiming to represent him, um, Jesus still remains the most famous, interesting, compelling man to ever live. Whether or not you call yourself a believer, this man, Jesus Christ the most interesting, compelling, gripping man that has ever lived, even 2,000 years after today's passage. Glennon Doyle and maybe us, still gripped by this idea of Jesus. Why do we keep going after this man? In verse 19, which I did not read um, in today's passage, right before today's passage, the Pharisees mentioned that the world has gone after Jesus. The world has gone after Jesus. Now, let's go back to these Greeks in the passage. They were admirers of Judaism. Um, we don't know if they were actual converts. And we don't really need to understand why they're in the story because they act as representatives for the whole world. We wish to see Jesus, they say. We wish to see Jesus. The whole world has come after him, and now we wish to see this man. They're looking for something. 
They're looking for a person, not for sage advice, not for a recommended reading list, not for strategies of enlightenment. Today's story plays out because their focal point is a man, is a person. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What does it mean? It means that they have heard whispers about this man. They know there's something special about him. But how? Why does Jesus matter to him, to these men, to the Jews, to us? And maybe it's because they're thinking he's a hero figure, because that's, that's what everyone else thinks. Here is this guy that we're just going to follow. We're going to make a big deal out of him. He's said things that no one has ever said. He's done things that we've never seen before. He is a hero. We can follow him. He's going to help us overthrow the Roman oppressors. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they're wanting a miracle worker. Maybe they're wanting a charismatic leader. And Jesus hears their request and he says aloud, the hour, of, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he hears people are looking for him. And now Jesus says, it's my time to be glorified. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the perception that the Greeks have of Jesus, it's not really who he is because they think they've already seen the glorified Jesus. In this time and place in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, people are clamoring to get a glimpse of Jesus. But they don't know that who he really is is going to be a huge disappointment to them. He's going to be a huge disappointment to these people. And where do we see that? Jesus says, the hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, If we read through the Gospels, there are a few references to the time or the hour of Jesus. In the early stages of Jesus' ministry, there's the account of Jesus turning water into wine. You might remember that. Um, And Mary, his mother, tells him, hey, this wedding party, they've run out of wine. And Jesus, in the typical frustrating way that he speaks to people so often, he says, woman... My, t- my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. I will perform this miracle for you, but that's not my hour. Later at the Feast of Tabernacles, um, Jesus' brothers urge him to glorify himself by performing miracles. And Jesus, again, he says, my time, my hour has not yet come. When the authorities are keeping an eye on him, when the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they, they want to arrest him, we're told that they can't because Jesus' time, his hour, had not yet come. So we see this theme of the hour going through the Gospels. But now, finally, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, as he's looking forward to the cross, he is saying, this is my hour. Now is the time for me to be glorified. In these days before the crucifixion, who Jesus really is, the full weight of Jesus Now it will be made known. It's not miracle worker Jesus. It's not wise man Jesus. It's not kind, empathetic Jesus. That's the glorified Jesus. The glorified Jesus is the one who's headed to the crucifixion a few days before that Friday. So this is what glory is when we hear this word glory. What do you think when you hear hear the word glory? Who are you? What type of person do you think you are? Do you want people to think of you as intelligent or uh, funny or compassionate or financially savvy or emotionally healthy or cultured or fill in the blank? What is it that you want people to think of you? That is glory. That's your idea of glorification. Um, 
we don't use this word in everyday language. Um, we use it in church settings, and we use it, it, maybe if you've watched the Olympics, there's this Olympic glory that people speak of. This is who you really are. This is what you want people to think of when they think of you. Um, when I was in first grade, I took part in a spelling bee at school, and uh, I won. Uh, one of the proudest moments of my life. The winning word was truck. And I, as a first grader, I was able to spell it T-R-U-C-K. I won. And I remember my teacher, his name was Mr. Shimke. He had a mustache. Um, my mother, the school principal, um, they announced that I was a winner. And um, I stood up in the front, and they took pictures. And I still remember to this day, it was one, I couldn't believe that it was happening. And I felt so happy in that moment. And do you know what I thought of myself as for the next several years? I thought of myself as the good speller, the spelling bee champion. This was my glory. When people looked at me, I always, I always got the, uh, during, during school, um, I was always able to spell the words right. That was my moment of glory. For years after, I took pride in the fact that I could spell words correctly. What about now? What is my glory? What is your glory? What is it that you're proud of? Is it that you have a certain type of family? Is it that you have a certain type of job? Is it that you're able to speak certain things? You might say your glory is your awesome relationship with a person that you love, or maybe it's your achievements. What is your glory? What is it that you're proud of that you want the world to know about you? This is what you're really about. This is who you really are. And Jesus says in this passage, the time for me, the time has come for people to see who I really am. The time has come for people to know what I'm really about. This is what Jesus is really about when he says, the, time, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And this leads us to our second point. The purpose of Jesus so as we continue on in the passage, verse 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses this, this imagery of wheat to help us understand what he means by glorification. The only way that a grain of wheat can re- reproduce is by dying. It's by being placed into the ground with the purpose of sprouting and yielding a harvest. What is the glory of a grain of wheat? Is it to look pretty? Is it, is it to be in the silo with all the other grains of wheat just hanging out there? Is it to be admired? No, the glory of a grain of wheat is to do what it was created to do, which is to propagate. It's to create more wheat. It's to reproduce. It's to bear fruit, as Jesus says in this passage. And to be glorified is to be revealed for what it really is. And the only way that it can be revealed for what it really is, is to die. And Jesus looks at this imagery, and he speaks this imagery, and he says that the glory of me is for me to die, to do what I was sent to do on earth, Jesus, his ultimate purpose was to die so that there would be much life as a result of his death. It'd be so that all people, the Greeks, you, me, would have life. 
by dying like the sea, Jesus fulfills his purpose. And the greatness and the truth of who Jesus is is made known finally. That's the glory of Jesus. To be put into the ground, to die. And why does it matter? How does it affect us? Why was Jesus' death necessary? Just as Jesus had a purpose, our lives have a purpose as well. And the purpose is this, that God created us to know him, to worship him, to enjoy him forever. But we distorted that purpose. We have loved ourselves more than God. We have trusted ourselves more than we trust God. Instead of looking to him for life and joy, we look to everything else but God for life and joy. And, of course, the natural consequence of that is death. Whenever we look apart, look for life apart from the only source of life, we'll find death. And here's the gospel, is that because this is true of us, we're condemned to die. We're condemned to, condemned to die with no way of escape. Except for one. The Bible says that God the Father, he sent his son Jesus to live the life of love and worship and trust that we couldn't. And he died the death that we earned for ourselves. Jesus took on the punishment for our rebellion against God our Father. And like this grain of wheat, he died so that we could live. So here Jesus is speaking of his glory. And we can't know glory unless we fulfill our purpose. And it's only through the death of Jesus, that we can fulfill our purpose. Listen to 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is, tr- is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this is what we're going to be thinking about this week as we head toward Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This is the gospel. This is what we should be thinking about. The purpose of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus our own death and the life that we have because Jesus died. Let's continue to think about this uh, grain imagery for a couple more moments. So Jesus says, left to itself, this grain of wheat, it's going to die anyway. The purpose of this grain of wheat would be wasted if it were left alone. Jesus points out here in this passage, there are two types of death. There is the death, that's the end of the grain of wheat, and that's it. There's nothing else to it. The grain of wheat falls at the end, it will be forgotten. Nothing else will ever come from it. But there's also a type of death that leads to more life. One is a wasted death, the other is a death that's life-giving. And when the grain of wheat goes somewhere, namely into the ground, that's when things can happen. There's life in the dirt. When the grain of wheat falls into the darkness of the soil and yields itself to the nutrients of the dirt and the water that soaks it, that's when there is glory for that grain of wheat. That's when there is life that springs from it. It might seem like nothing is happening for a while as that grain of wheat falls into the ground. But then what happens? There's life. And that leads us to our final point. The path of Jesus. Jesus is glorified, and you were meant to be glorified as well. You were meant to be glorified. The only way we can experience glory is to die. 
The only way we can experience glory is to die. And what about you? What about me? There's always death in us. If not now, then eventually. There's physical death. I know that there are people here in this room that are mourning the the deaths of people that they love. There's the death of a relationship. There's the slow psychic death that happens as you watched a loved one deteriorate. The failing hopes you had for your children. Things that you've built up and held on to for so long, slipping through your fingers. Is this you? Is this me? And how can we think about these little deaths that happen? It's springtime, and um, if you look on the ground, you might see caterpillars, depending on where you go. Um, I saw a caterpillar on the ground in our front yard uh, not too long ago. And um, what do these caterpillars become? They become butterflies. Have you ever thought about the process by which they become a butterfly? I know that we've all learned this in school. They go through the cycles. Um, so what happens is the caterpillars, they, they find a place to hang themselves and they spin a cocoon. And as they inhabit that cocoon, this is what happens. They're wrapped up. And every part of their body starts breaking down until everything in that cocoon is liquefied. The caterpillar becomes a protein soup. And what must it be like for a caterpillar to experience these things? I'm assuming because these are insects, they don't have the same type of thoughts that we do, but let's assume that they do. What would it be like for them to watch their, 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 their legs fall off, parts of their body to disintegrate before their very eyes? What would it feel like for them, for their bodies to completely break down until that light goes out, until it turns into darkness for them? How scary would it be to watch everything fall apart and break down and become an unrecognizable mess? Back to our our own lives. We speak of glory. We speak of hope and new life. I know that we speak very hopefully at, at church. We always talk about hope. We always talk about something happening in the future. We talk about the glorification of our bodies. We talk about all things being made good and right and all injustice being wiped out. And one day there will be an end to death forever. And this, this is true. We should never forget it. But what happens between then and now? I'll tell you what happens. Difficult conversations, sleepless nights, tears, lots of tears, despair and anger for months or years, perhaps even decades, when you feel like something is not right, when it feels like everything in my life is broken down. Why is this happening? Where is this hope that you speak of, preacher? A few weeks ago, I was um, working at my desk, and I I I got hit by this wave of deep sadness about things that are happening around me and in the world. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do with it. So um, 
got up from my desk and I just laid down on the cold hardwood floor and I curled up into fetal position. And uh, if you've known me long enough, you know that I'm not really an emotional person. Um, I'm not the type of person to curl up into fetal position. Um, but in that moment, I felt so hopeless. And it seemed like nothing good can come from whatever's happening in my life. And have you ever been in that place when it seemed hopeless and despairing? When it seemed like you were in a place of death? What is happening? What's happening? Could it be that in those moments of despair, that God is doing something? That God is stripping us of our false hopes? That he's allowing us to be disillusioned by the people or the things that we put our trust in. He's allowing us to understand how truly weak and sinful we are. He's stripping us. And until there was a type of death in us, we would have held on to those things. There's death. But for the Jesus follower, there is life. And then there is glory. What then shall we do with these dying grains of wheat in our lives? Verses 25 and 26. Jesus speaking again. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where did Jesus go? And why does he say these words right after he talks about him dying? Where will Jesus lead you? Following Jesus does not mean that we'll always want to do what he asks of us. Would you want to follow Jesus to the cross? Have you read accounts of what happens? It's awful. If Jesus asked you to do that, would you do that? I don't know if I could say I would. Following Jesus means that he'll ask us to do things that we're not going to want to do. You might want to live a certain type of lifestyle. Maybe live in a certain social circle or have a prestigious career. Maybe with a certain sexual ethic. You might want to live in a zip code, particular zip code. You might want to hang out with certain people of socioeconomic levels so your life is more comfortable. And these things, they're, most of them are fine. They're not illegal. But what if Jesus were to ask you to give those things up? What then will you do? The follower of Jesus will say this. And it may, it may be really hard to say this. It hurts. It hurts to give this up. This does not fit into the plans that I made for my life. This goes against all my feelings and emotions. And yet I will let them go for the sake of Jesus. Why do we sing about this man, Jesus Christ? Why are people still stuck on him? Even if they don't call themselves Christians 2,000 years later. It's because Jesus matters. It's because Jesus deserves every aspect of your life more than you deserve a life. You know what? Some of us, we have worked hard. Um, Some of you guys have worked hard. You've worked your butts off, and you have awesome things in your life. 
And you deserve those things. You have the right to hold on to them. You really do. But who deserves it more than you do? Jesus does. Jesus deserves your life more than you do. Jesus says, follow him rather than your heart. Trust him rather than yourself. Glennon Doyle and the two million people that bought your book. What are we called to do? We're called to death for the sake of others. We're called to be like this grain of wheat that Jesus talks about. To fall into the ground, into the darkness and uncertainty of the soil. Why? So that there would be a life that springs from it. So that others would live. And ultimately so that we would live. So that Jesus would be glorified in our lives. Our purpose as Jesus followers is to give ourselves up. God's intent for our lives is for us to take up our cross and die to ourselves. Die to our preferences. Die to our love of comfort and safety and predictability. Die to our need to be right and respected. When God calls his people, he calls us to things that require self-denial all the time. If there is not difficulty and some type of painful sacrifice in your life, then consider... Are you really living the type of life that God has called you to? And this is why Jesus uses such stark language. Death and denial, losing your life, hating your life. Because Jesus knows how difficult it's going to be. Jesus says, follow me where I'm going. Now that's difficult news. That's hard for me to say because I don't like to hear that. Um... There's a secret that very often the pastors and preachers say things that they don't believe or they don't want to believe. And this is something I don't want to believe. It's hard. But there's a good purpose for it. We need to remember that Jesus went to more than the cross. After his death and burial, Jesus was raised to life. We're going to sing about that in this next song. Jesus ascended in glory to the right hand of the Father, and now he reigns forevermore. And Jesus says, where I am, there will be my servant also. If you go to Jesus with a cross and to the grave, into the dirty soil, into the darkness, you will be raised to life. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where I am, there will be my servant also. If you follow Jesus, you will be glorified. Colossians 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 1 Peter 1. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Every sacrifice you ever make for Jesus will be vindicated. It's a guarantee. Nothing you do for Jesus is in vain. God remembers it. God will honor that sacrifice. Every act of self-denial, every painful act of worship, sometimes to worship God, hurts. Every moment you spent serving the least of these, every time you struggled through the doubts and confusion, one day you'll realize that every step you took following Jesus was worth it. This is your purpose. This is your glory. Because we die in this life, 
Others will have life. We will have life. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, we um, we speak of life and we speak of hope and we speak of joy. And these are things. These things are gloriously true. But before these things, there is death. There is disappointment. There are tears. There's anger and despair. But thank God it doesn't need to stay like that. Thank God. Thank you that you gave us Jesus, the man who died so that we would live. And I pray that as we think about this coming up this week, as we think about Good Friday, as we think about Jesus being tortured and put to death, that we would not despair, but there is life in him. There is life in him, and I pray that we take hold of it. We pray this in his name. Amen.